Welcome once again to another episode of The Wall Behind and Beyond. I am your host, Philip A. Jones. As always, we speak to the issues impacting those who are justice impacted by providing insights and ideas for how we can navigate the criminal legal system. It is our mission to raise awareness and be a place of support for those behind the wall as well as their loved ones on the outside. Today we have a great guest who has spent over two decades working in the legal field as an advocate for immigrants, the impoverished, as well as those who are indigent. She is also the executive director of a Bay Area nonprofit called the Small Axe Foundation. Please welcome to the show, Jessica St. Louis. How are you today, friend? I'm very good, Philip. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. We've been waiting to talk to you because you're doing some great work out there. And the fact of the matter is, everyone who's in this realm and working on these type of issues, um, they have a voice, and the people need to hear it. So thank you again for coming on. Tell us a little bit about your background and where you are from. Uh, I'm a Bay Area native. I was born and raised in Oakland. I've always lived in the Bay Area all my life. You know, in my mid-40s, so my parents were right of the 60s. Um, they were both also living in San Francisco at the time. So um, I had a lot of history with that type of work, and um, my father is an immigrant from the Philippines, and my mother is actually what people call a red diaper baby. She is the first-generation daughter of uh, communists who fled Europe in uh, during World War II. So her family lives in Southern California and were blacklisted during the McCarthy era. So there's a lot of working-class struggle in my background. You know, you rarely hear um, about people who have went through the struggle and also their children who have come up as a product of that. Um, so we're, we're so happy to have you on to talk to us about some of that history. In your bio, it speaks about you being a legal advocate for immigrants, indigents, and impoverished people. Can you speak about this? And what was that like? So I got my first experience working and doing significant work in the legal field actually right out of college. Um, I worked for an immigration law firm that specialized in deportation defense and what's called post-conviction relief. I think most people don't know that when immigrants have legal status in the United States, if they commit a crime or a lot of times if they have old crimes, they come up on background checks, they are still subject to deportation even though um, they have status in the U.S. So I was lucky enough to be a part of that for about 17 years through some of the worst uh, federal immigration legislation, including uh, post 9-11 EDPA and the USA Patriot Act, which kind of gutted judicial review for federal immigration cases. I also then went on to law school and uh, ended up working in criminal defense, which is, is kind of related to what I did with immigration law. I clerked at a public defender's office here in California and then worked for a private law firm for a number of years. Um, and I was assigned to a felony unit. So we did a lot of cases that, you know, have significant potential sentencing issues. Um, and that was a lot of really good experience for me. But I've also, you know, handled a whole bunch of misdemeanor cases. And, you know, criminal defense attorneys kind of dabble in everything because it's usually a, a global issue for a lot of people. They have family law issues as well. But I've spent my entire career being a legal advocate or working, you know, somehow related to California trial and federal court. It's work that I love doing. I have never felt like um, it wasn't worthwhile, and I have always felt like I'm really uh, helping people that, that a lot of people look down on or discount or, or consider that they 
don't have rights like other people or shouldn't. I must say that it's good that you have made it your priority to fight for justice impacted people. We need more people like you. And I know, I know how hard it was for immigrants post 9-11. And, and they need advocates, uh, marginalized people, I, I say. They need advocates, um, people that really care about the struggle and want to see um, conditions improve for humanity. Not It doesn't matter what country you originally came from. We're all from somewhere else. I know um, that on Twitter you often speak about restorative justice. In your opinion, uh, what does restorative justice really mean and how can this be implemented? It's a big question, but I'll try and make it fairly brief. Um, Restorative justice isn't just revamping the criminal justice system or a lot of people say abolish prisons. You know, it feels good to say that, right? We're all angry. I mean, at this time, there are about five and a half million people in the United States in prison jail or on some kind of supervised probation. And the way the criminal justice system works now, about 50% of those will end up back in jail or prison um, once they're released. This is not a failure of those individuals. This is a failure of the system. And what restorative justice means is we start at the bottom. We start before um, cases are charged and we, um, we, we take people out of traditional court proceedings who need, uh, who can actually better themselves and better their lives with support. So in California specifically, the chief justice ordered trial court to um, implement a restorative justice model, which means that there's a separate court for mental health issues. There's a separate uh, court for veterans, for military people, because there's a lot that goes into charging someone with a crime and, and starting at the beginning, giving them support people to keep them out of jail and make them functional members of society is how we're going to lower the prison rate and lower the recidivism rate. And that's powerful because, and thanks for that clarity, because I was always under the impression uh, that restorative justice was about uh, making amends with the victims um, and taking responsibility for you know some of our some of our actions and victimizations of others. But re from what you're saying, restorative justice is broad and it has many different components and aspects to it. If I'm correct, that is correct, and I think it's extremely important to understand that yes, accountability, you know, restitution, making amends, that's all part of it. But like as an example. You know, um, with one of the trial courts that I work with, we have uh, a drug court. And when the people that are referred to the drug court, they finish all their programs, we have graduation for them. They get certificates. Their families get to come. It's a good feeling. There's far less of these people. So recidivism rates in, in rehabilitative court proceedings covers around 35% to down to 30%, you know, which is 15 to 20% less than regular courts. So people that are saying, you know, you send these people to jail, you let them out, they go back in. Well, that's our fault. We can make it so that if they have to serve time, when they come out, they're much less likely to go back in because they still have the support of these restorative justice teams. Wow. So the, re the revolving door that people like to often mention is preventable, in other words, because if a person is, while doing time, is able to uh, access certain resources, uh, and address certain needs uh, while they're still in. Uh, when they come out, um, they are less likely to return. And so this revolving door is actually something that could be prevented if we would uh, focus in the right direction. That's right. And, and even better than that, most of the restorative justice programs, jail is the last option. If these people finish their programs, go to their doctors, take their medications, stay clean and test clean, jail doesn't even happen, right? They're on probation or they're on a program and they never end up incarcerated.
keeping people out of jail to begin with is the number one way to keep them from, you know, going back in. So what we need is alternatives to incarceration. What we need is you give someone another opportunity or say a second chance. Um, you're looking for other ways that you can assist and help people rather than always using prison as a solution to every problem. That's correct. All right. That's more like it. See what I'm saying? We get to the bottom and we try to make it so that everybody is aware and understand the type of things that's going on within the system. And that, and that takes me to my next question. What are your thoughts overall about criminal justice reform? How, in your opinion, can the system be reformed? And again, it's a big topic, but it includes everything. It's a global reformation. You know, tearing it all down, you know, getting rid of prisons, sure, that's great. Like I said before, it feels good to say it because we're angry. The biggest problem in the United States in terms of you know, mass incarceration and criminal justice is that the United States, people of the United States, they conflate justice with vengeance, right? Back in the 1970s, there was far more rehabilitative model in jails and prisons. Once we hit the 90s and there was a war on drugs and the 94 crime bill, we capitulated from rehabilitation and, you know, teaching someone a lesson and helping them reform to just punishing them forever. And that's the wrong model. So, you know, it starts with our attitude towards criminal justice and towards people who have committed crimes. But it also includes bail reform, sentencing reform, again, these re restorative justice courts, um, providing more social workers and mental health professionals in the court system instead of just attorneys and judges. And then also the support that are in the jails. You know, jails and prisons have become far more draconian. People are locked up and there's very little access that they have, not just to the outside world, but to programs that are helpful to them. You know, if we change that for the people that do end up having to be incarcerated for a period of time, they will come out as much more functional human beings. There's absolutely no one who has spent time in jail or visited a jail or worked in a jail that thinks that being incarcerated helps you become a better person. It doesn't, and everyone knows that. You know, the reason why we put people in prison is because we're angry and we want them to suffer, and that's the wrong attitude. Great point about the conflation of justice with vengeance. The lock them up and throw away the key model is a failure. Uh, we've seen this um, over the last 25, 30 years. You cannot lock your way um, out of a problem. That is never going to be a solution. And that's all politically motivated because, like you said, it sounds good to say, uh, why are criminals constantly going in and out of prison? They need to stay in there. Well, when you talk like that, you uh, eliminate certain things, such as um, low-level crimes, for instance. You know, you can't lock somebody up for life over the smallest, you know, infraction against society. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. And why would we throw away our people? So that's a great point you made. What are your thoughts as it relates to second chances and sentencing caps in the U.S.? So I absolutely think that sentencing caps are important, but they need to be addressed on the basis of the crime. You know, my issue with you know, the indeterminate sentence is completely inhumane. And it also belies the argument that prison is to reform and rehabilitate. If we're going to reform and rehabilitate in prison, then giving indeterminate sentences means that these people will never get out. So we can't ever show that they've been rehabilitated. So, you know, those two things are in conflict. If you think about indeterminate sentences, you know, let's look at, you know, a famous case. George Jackson, in 1961, he was arrested for an armed robbery of $70 and sentenced to an indeterminate sentence. That wouldn't happen now, but what you have now is people trying to make a point or, or, or use someone as, you know, to teach a lesson and 
you know, sentencing someone to, for a violent crime to life without the possibility of parole. LWAP is a huge problem. It keeps, it costs the country money, right? Everyone's like, you know, the prisons make $74 billion in revenue. And that's true. But prison complex spends about $200 billion on housing people who are there for life. So it's not even cost effective to the country if that's something that you care about. But these people, if you're going to follow the criminal justice model that we have now, you go to court, you get convicted, you are sentenced, you serve your time, you should have the opportunity to show that you have reformed. You should have the opportunity to rejoin the community um, in a functional way. And that's why these indeterminate sentences are, they're inhumane. There's nothing served from keeping someone in prison for the rest of their lives except, you know, from our own anger and our own sense of vengeance. And again, that's the wrong attitude. Hey, I spoke about this before um, in the past on the show, is that how long does it take to correct? Uh, even when you put a child in time out, you don't just put them in the corner facing the wall and say, you know, you're never coming out. You talk to them, you put them in time out, you come back in the middle part and have another discussion, and then they say they understand what you're telling them, and then, okay, go play. So even that on a small scale is showing that you cannot correct something if there is no opportunity for the person to show the growth and the change in their thoughts for what they have done. Michelle Alexander spoke about this in her book, The New Jim Crow, Indeterminate Senses. Nowhere else in the world do they do this. We are the last people who have not figured it out that it's not necessary uh, to take someone's freedom forever. Like, that's just uh, draconian. Well, it also makes no sense because if we're saying these people are going to prison to rehabilitate them, but we give them no hope of ever getting out, what's their incentive to rehabilitate? You know, people don't don't think that the founders of this country, the four out of the first 10 amendments that were written to the Constitution protect the rights of the accused and the convicted, right? That's the way that the, our forefathers intended the criminal justice system to be. And obviously, it's a bare-bones guideline to the Constitution, but there was never an intention to keep people locked in prison forever. That's right. And that's why they didn't have that many prisons back then. They dealt with uh, crime in many different ways. Um, they didn't just let it be boiled down to, oh, you did a crime, you need to be going, you need to go away. Because, you know, you're leaving families behind. You know, many women who go to prison leave families behind. And then the cycle uh, continues. It's a revolving door. So we don't want to ruin families. Uh, we do want accountability. Uh, we do want people to change. But we also want to provide resources necessary, such as employment, housing, giving people a meaningful opportunity to have a good life. Um, and then you will definitely see recidivism reduction. That's exactly right. So you have a nonprofit called Small Axe Foundation. Can you tell us about it? What is its mission? So Small Axe has been kind of like a dream deferred for a long time for me. Um, I was a single parent, and I have been for most of my parenting life. And in, you know, one of the issues that single parents single income families and children face in the barrier particularly, but all over the country, are the exigent expenses that we can't budget for. So people that are on um, public assistance or who have a fixed income or just one job, when your car breaks down or your plumbing fails, that's a chunk of money that you can't afford. People take out, you know, payday loans from predatory lenders or they borrow money from family or, you know, they end up in massive debt. So what Small Acts does is we work with local businesses and local vendors to provide those services to families under exigent circumstances. So if your car breaks down, you don't have the money, you know, to replace whatever needs to be replaced. You come to our um, nonprofit, 
we'll find a vendor in your area. We'll pay the, the, the vendor directly and they'll fix your car. It's no money out of your pocket. And that way we also give business to local vendors. We are back on the other side with Jessica. Uh, you were talking about your nonprofit. Is there anything else you would like to add? Yeah, I wanted to just briefly mention one of the programs that is um, attached to our nonprofit is something I'm really excited about, which is the Junior Justice Program. Um, my belief, and I say this all the time to people, there's no such thing as a bad kid. There's only bad situations. One of the things that I want to do in the criminal justice system is to completely revamp juvenile justice. The junior justice program is we go into elementary school classrooms, we teach them a little bit of basics about the justice system, and then we run a mock trial. So age appropriate, but so that the kids can see what the, the, what the process is like and get a better understanding of what it really means to get arrested and to go to and to go to court and stuff like that. And I feel like especially kids, like at-risk kids, kids in marginalized communities, it's really important that they see that because it will keep them out of the system. And, you know, that would be a huge win. You know, I have a lot of, a, a lot of faith in people that represent juveniles, but the system is broken when it comes to kids. And a lot of it is because they and their parents just don't understand what the process is like. So junior justice kind of brings that to classrooms. And I've got a lot of good feedback from teachers about it. So I'm pretty excited about that part. Yes, I like that. Because um, I was one of them kids, you know what I'm saying? I needed guardrails, you know what I'm saying? I needed mentors and programs. Junior justice program sounds excellent. It's why I speak to the youth, actually, because I like to talk to them about my experience and the pitfalls of joining gangs or being involved in um, these type of uh, tribalistic uh, kinds of uh, lifestyles. So I think that you, you, you hit it on something good with the junior justice program. I look forward to hearing more and learning more about it. Thank you. So uh, what are you most passionate about when it comes to your work? That's a good question. Um, mostly advocacy for people. You know, the individual person really matters to me. You know, I think I, a lot of us get caught up in our caseloads. And, you know, back when I was in private practice, there were a lot of times when I had 200, 300 people on the caseload. It's important to me that everybody, every individual feels like they're, they're being represented. And one of the most important things about my work is, is connected to the junior justice program is kids. You know, I have several kids. Most of them are grown. You know, they had their normal kids stumbling. Um, and I feel like if I hadn't had the information I had and been in the industry that I'm in, I don't know if I would have been able to guide them as well as I could. Um, and I think that a lot of parents, it's not that they don't care or they don't try. It's that they don't know what these kids are getting into when, you know, they act out. And I would love to be able to do more work with kids and educating kids and educating their parents in the community because the more knowledge you have, the better choices you're going to make across the board. Hey, that's a fact, you know, for sure. Um, when I think about what you were saying just now, I say to myself, except for the fact that I didn't have mentors, except for the fact that the role models I saw were doing certain things, which made me a product of my environment because that's all I saw, I would have been a kid that went a different way. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. You know what I mean? You take a kid out that environment and you put people around that kid with, who has the influence, but also is showing the kid, you know what I mean, a different way, you know, that someone cares. These things are very important uh, when it comes to upbringing and making sure that children are safe and protected. Uh, when that happens, you see a different type of uh, outcome, for sure. That's right. There's no bad kids, bad situations. So what would you like people to take away from this interview? I would love people to have a better understanding about the criminal justice system as a whole, which is why I try and educate, and I know we can't give 
too much information, you know, on the podcast because there's time constraints. But it's one of the things that I'm kind of hoping that people will look at my nonprofit, listen to your podcast, you know, look at people who are, are, are doing similar work in their communities and get a better understanding about what the criminal justice system is all about. The other thing that I really hope that people take away from this interview is that, you know, people pushing for justice reform aren't necessarily saying, let's let everybody out of prison and never put anyone in jail again. You know, it's a, it's a global issue. It's something that we have to look at from all different points. And, you know, the most important point is we can't let our anger make decisions for us when it comes to other people's lives. Vengeance is not okay. You know, justice and rehabilitation can be appropriate, but vengeance and punishment where there's no, you know, rehabilitation or restoration of rights is, is inappropriate in every single situation. That's right. And uh, I'm all about people coming together for solutions because you could talk about the problem all day and it keeps on existing. And this is what I find when you got a lot of talking points I and mean, you got a lot of people with motive, uh, agendas politically or otherwise. Let's come together, no matter what your ideology or belief system is, let's come together for the right things. Uh, we all have mutual, uh, you know, things at stake. So if we can come together and agree on a few things, then we could come up with great solutions. And that is what I've always been about. And I like to preach and practice. So I love hearing that. So thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, there are a lot of people that are somewhat on the same side of criminal justice reform, but there's so much divisiveness and infighting. And, and what you say is true. People with like ideologies need to come together, set aside whatever their differences are, and focus on a collective goal. For sure. So you might want the same destination, and then there might be two different ways uh, to get to it, right? And this is what I see a lot on social media. So everybody's saying, okay, let's do something with the problem. Let's figure out a solution. I'm going to travel left, and you're going to travel right. Uh, we're still trying to get to the same destination, so why don't we just, you know, put our heads together and figure out a way that we can compromise in that area and travel in, in oneness, or we're still going to the same place. So I'll meet you there. You know what I'm saying? That's exactly right. You know, the government and the interests of capital are divisive enough, and we're deliberately separated and manipulated. What we need to do is overcome whatever our own personal boundaries are and focus on that collective goal. For sure. And with that being said, you know, how can people get a hold of you if they want to donate or if they want to get involved or they just want to follow what you got going on? Uh, so I have a website. It's smallactfoundation.org. All of our contact information is there. Uh, people that are looking for services can apply for services right on the website. There's a phone number. There's an email. I'm always available. I actually don't know my own Twitter handle, but I'm on Twitter and I'm fairly active as well. So, you know, I accept DMs. If people have questions, I'm happy to answer them. I, the most important thing that we can all do is is educate ourselves and each other. And, and I would love it if people would reach out, even with just questions. If they don't want to donate or they don't need help, just ask me some questions. You know, uh, if you know a kid or have a kid whose teacher would want some of this education in their classroom, you know, spreading the word is incredibly important. That's right. Thank you so much for doing the show. It was excellent because you hit on some key points. And I'm very happy about the work that you're doing, very proud. Keep your head up. Like they say, the harvest is large, but the labors are few. So take care. We look forward to seeing and following what you're doing and staying connected to you. We're all on the same page as far as this work goes, and let's join forces. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoy your podcast, and I respect what you and your, what, and your group are doing. For sure, for sure. Thank you so much, too. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speaker or our guests 
and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the wall behind and beyond. 